Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You are living in the future, and in the future, you can buy underwear made out of silver. Yes, it's true. NASA, the U.S. Special Forces, they know all about this. They use it, and you can own it too. MacWeldon.com. Underwear made out of XT2 silver fibers. Superhero underwear. If you were hiding from the Predator, this is the underwear you would want. Not only would it protect you from his alien heat vision helmet, it would be durable enough to survive days of fashioning primitive weapons in the jungle. And the silver stuff is antimicrobial. It eliminates odor and wicks away moisture so that your nethers are safe from humidity. Mac. Weldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N. Their products, sweats, undershirts, socks, it's all high-tech, comfortable, and durable enough for people running marathons, but made for people running to catch the bus. And they have a simple, smart website that makes it very easy to buy some for yourself. And if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will refund you. No questions asked. So, go to MacWeldon.com right now, and you will get 20% off using the promo code so smart. That's so smart at MacWeldon.com. MacWeldon. Smart underwear for smart men. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 71. This is the fifth episode in a series of episodes, a season of episodes all about logical fallacies. Logical fallacies. That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And if you haven't listened to the last few episodes, I really do recommend you go back and catch yourself up so that you can be totally ready for this episode, which is about a logical fallacy that's kind of complicated. I mean, you're going to understand it because we have three fantastic experts who are going to put it into terms that we can all understand, but it is good to go back. And if you haven't listened to them, get the foundation, the fallacy fallacy, the straw man fallacy, the black and white fallacy, and the no true Scotsman fallacy. All of those together will totally prepare you for this episode's fallacy, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Just as before, we have three experts on logic and rationality and reasoning and psychology and society, and they are going to explain everything there is to know about the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Experts, please introduce yourselves. So my name is Jesse Richardson. I'm the founder of YourLogicalFallacyIs.com, a website that helps people to learn about fallacies and critical thinking generally. Uh, I'm Barbara Drescher. I'm a cognitive psychologist by trade. I taught um, at the university level, taught cognitive psychology, research methods, um, and statistics, things like that. 
My name is Mike Rignetta. Um, I'm the writer and host of a YouTube show called Idea Channel, which is produced by PBS Digital Studios. And together we will be exploring this fallacy that I think is best introduced by this spooky, spooky, spooky example. example. Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy were both presidents of the United States, elected 100 years apart. Both were shot and killed by assassins who were known by three names, with 15 letters. John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald. And neither killer would make it to the trial. Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy, and Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. They were both killed on a Friday while sitting next to their wives, Lincoln in the Ford Theater, and Kennedy in a Lincoln, made by Ford. Both men were succeeded by a man named Johnson, Andrew for Lincoln, and Lyndon for Kennedy. Andrew was born in 1808, Lyndon in 1908. What are the odds? Well, the odds are actually pretty good. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney. I will be your host. And on this episode, we are exploring the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. One of those fallacies that makes clusters of coincidence seem way more meaningful than they really are. And you'll learn all about that. Why it is, how to defend against it, how to prevent committing that fallacy. Up next, after this commercial break. I have always loved learning about how our minds work, and now there is something that is so cool, that is so awesome. I can't wait for you to try this out. It's called The Great Courses Plus. Okay, here we go. I'm I'm at my computer. Let's type in some things here. Oh boy, I am at thegreatcoursesplus.com, and guess what? You can go through the entire catalog of cool stuff they have on offer at this website and just add them to your watch list. One at a, here we go. Click, 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 click. Oh boy. What's in my watch list now? Critical decision-making, mastering influence, great ideas of psychology, how we learn, cognitive behavioral therapy, and so many, many more. These are like complete college courses with lots and lots of individual lectures. They're vetted. They're professionally made. Experts in their field teach you about these topics on video. It is the coolest thing ever. You can get 
wonderful video courses specializing in psychology and sociology, as well as unlimited access to a huge library of the Great Courses Lecture Series and many other topics taught by top professors. It's called The Great Courses Plus. And right now, they're giving all of my listeners a great offer. You can watch their popular course, Behavioral Economics, When Psychology and Economics Collide, and hundreds of other courses absolutely free. Behavioral Economics, taught by Professor Scott Hutel. This is a course that's so fascinating. It looks at our decision-making processes, what drives the choices we make consciously and even unconsciously. And with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch that and as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, stream from any internet-connected TV, PC, or through The Great Courses Plus apps. And right now, you can get this. You can stream this and hundreds of others, including this Behavioral Economics one, a $235 value, by the way, for free. When you use my special URL, which is, here we go, listen to this, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and in this episode, we are exploring the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. All of those examples with Kennedy and Lincoln, they sure seemed amazing. I mean, how could they all be coincidences? How could there be that many coincidences? Something has to be happening here, right? Well, when you're befuddled by the Lincoln and Kennedy connections, you neglect to notice all of the things that don't line up. Kennedy and Lincoln, they're different in so many ways. Kennedy was a Catholic and Lincoln was born a Baptist. Kennedy was killed with a rifle, Lincoln with a pistol. Kennedy was shot in Texas, Lincoln in Washington, D.C. Kennedy had lustrous auburn hair and Lincoln had that craggy face topped with that insane hat. And all of these examples, they're just part of thousands of other examples, millions and millions of examples that you completely ignore when you start paying attention to the coincidences that line up. When you draw that bullseye around the clusters, and that's where the Texas sharpshooter fallacy gets its name. It's named after the idea of um, a Texan, a sharpshooter, a guy with a gun facing a barn, shoots all of his bullets into the side of the barn, then walks over and draws a target around where the best cluster is to make it look like uh, he is a great sharpshooter when in fact he has decided ahead of time or uh, after the fact um, where the sort of quality material is based upon uh, based upon what happened. So this false cause fallacy is essentially coined after a marksman shooting randomly at barns and then painting a bullseye target around the spot where the most bullet holes appear, making it appear as if he's a really good shot. Um, so clusters naturally appear by chance, but they don't necessarily indicate that there's a causal relationship. And it's a type of or overgeneralization that occurs when lots of data points are available and some of them kind of hit the mark. So essentially, the person making the argument cherry picks the data that fits their preconceived notion of, or the, the thing that they're trying to, to, com to convince someone of. Essentially cherry picking a data cluster to suit an argument or finding a pattern to fit the presumption. You are um, looking at a huge set of data and you are finding uh, where information has clustered uh, and then not questioning why that information has clustered. Um, one of the examples that I read, which I think is on Wikipedia, it's about a study um, where 
they're trying to determine whether or not living near power lines has health effects. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at a range of, I think it was something like 800 ailments. And so in within those 800 ailments, they found that people living near power lines had a high incidence of leukemia. And so the conclusion was, um, oh, okay, so power lines cause leukemia. When really, mathematically speaking, in a group of 800 ailments, it is it is not only probable but likely that there will be one illness that has a higher incidence. So um, one of the best ones is probably um, Everything Ever by Nostradamus. Um, <laughs> dude wrote like thousands of obscure esoteric quatrains and one of them talked about Hister and made allusions to Germany at war. And with the advantage of hindsight, it's been held up as a prophecy of Hitler in World War II. Um, but never mind the fact that Hister is Latin for the Danube rather than the name of a dictator. And we should, of course, ignore all the thousands of other vaguely worded supposed prophecies that aren't able to be quite so conveniently interpreted to rhyme with things that happened after the fact. So it's actually pretty common in science, even in, in the soft sciences, especially. The file drawer effect. If you get um, a scientist who is very conclusion driven, they're actually trying to prove something, which is not a very good way to think scientifically, but it does happen. If you make enough comparisons, for example, if you, if you study enough um, variables, some of them just purely because uncommon things happen or rare things happen, um, some of them are going to come out, you, you're going to find something. Only studies that result in statistically significant results are published, thereby somewhat misrepresenting the reality. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what you found is um, supports what you're trying to, to say. But they'll latch onto those things and say, CO is right. Um, so in those cases, it can be proactively corrected using the appropriate st statistical analysis. So sometimes it just happens accidentally um, and it, it can be corrected for it very easily. And that's one of the reasons why we have um, lots of different ways to adjust for uh, looking at really big data sets and looking at lots of, of different variables at once. Um, and there's been some interesting work done by Ben Goldacre and um, a few other people um, around the world attempting to get um, studies that have um, essentially produced null results um, to be published as well so that we can get an idea of where the noise to signal is because if you you might have an outlier situation of something if 20 trials have been done on something and it's come up with a null um, result and then there's one that has come up with a positive result perhaps because of some confounding factor that hasn't been accounted for it looks like oh we've got proof that this thing works you essentially have your conclusion ahead of time that you know, you know, like these people doing the study of near the power lines weren't looking for leukemia. They happened upon it. Mm -hmm. But there's another I, there's another sort of version of the Texas sharpshooter, which is which is you are looking for the cluster of data that proves whatever your original conclusion is. A good a good kind of clean example to help you with the definition is that a broken clock is right twice a day. Okay, so somebody who wants to show that this clock works, they're going to use those two data points and they're going to ignore all the times when the clock is wrong. And this can happen on purpose or it can happen without somebody even realizing it simply because they are conclusion driven in their thinking. So they're looking for ways to prove their points. So they find the data points that actually support them. And then they use that and say, OK, here, this is why I'm right. Yeah. You know, I um, I often bring up the, the, the Lincoln and Kennedy examples. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. look, look, look how they're exactly the same. Yeah. And um, 
I, I, recently, even when people talking about like uh, the new Star Wars movie and they go through how this is exactly the same as the first Star Wars movie. <laughs> and, and and I'm like, oh, this is Texas Sharpshooter, but I don't want to be is? that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, but, especially but, over Star Wars because, you know. Right. But I'm like, you're just finding everything that's exactly – you're just finding the data points that match up your – your, you know, your hypothesis and yeah. you're saying, and ha ha, here it is. And, and, uh, ignoring everything that doesn't match. And it's, uh, it's, true. it's so easy to it's do. It's very easy to do. And it, and that's one of the reasons why it's so common and we don't even realize that it's common, but it's, it's, it, you see it everywhere. I mean, you see it with things like, um, people who talk to the dead, like John Edwards. Okay. If you actually oh go and sit in the audience, the man misses a lot. But then when you see this show, they edit out all the misses and all you get are the hits. And that makes uh-huh. you believe that he's psychic. It's the proof that he's psychic. And this is this is cherry picking. And it's it's interesting, isn't it, that that it's kind of like it I think it um it exposes our propensity to recognize patterns um oh, yeah. after the fact and our, our inclination to want to see um some kind of signal um where we are attempting to, I don't know, in some way make it um, apparent that we, um, we've found something that, that makes sense to us, to our anecdotal, circumstantial mind. It's, yeah, it's a matter of, sometimes it's a matter of, um, in order to spot it even, sometimes you have to understand the statistics if it's if they're using a lot of numbers. Sometimes you have to understand the sampling methods that they used. Sometimes you just can't know. And, and if you don't know the field, um, it becomes very difficult then to even spot. And I think, and I think that the that actually just to step back yeah. uh, like one or two points that I think you know you see you really do see the Texas sharpshooter a lot with statistics, yeah, a lot, mm-hmm. a lot with statistics. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's another really like uh, like I think that might be a fallacy in and of itself, which is just that statistics it, it represent the truth, um, and that there's there's a big there's like a big, big um, strategy, or um, I don't know, attitude, something where it's like, if you have a, if you have the statistics that say a thing, and you have enough of the statistics that center around a particular thing, you have, um, you have created the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, you have proven your point. And so it's almost like sharpshooter on sharpshooter fallacy, mm-hmm. where it's like if you have enough and like the thing that has generated the statistics may be an example of the sharpshooter fallacy. And then you have enough of those uh, fallacious uh, statistics come together to create another level of the Texas sharpshooter mm-hmm. fallacy that then when you say to people like, well, I don't know, like, but aren't there a lot of things outside of this? What are the counter arguments? It is almost like you are insulting the truth. Like you're telling them that, uh, that objective reality doesn't exist. Uh-huh. Um, and I've had this experience a lot where when you call into question how statistics are framed or how statistics relate to one another, people get really, really uncomfortable. Or a certain kind of a certain kind of person will get very, very uncomfortable. I think my absolute favorite example is the um, other than the the Lincoln Kennedy thing is the um, is the Titan the uh, the futility the it is a book called the the um, the uh, Futility or the Wreck of the Titan. It's a 1890s novel about a giant ship that uh, hits an iceberg and sinks. Yes. <laughs> and it is, so it's, it's written long before the actual Titanic. And there's a lot of similarities you can pull out of it. 
and people point out those similarities and say, this is impossible. Was this person seeing the future? But they discount that of the like 20 similarities, there's 20,000 dissimilarities. Exactly, right? yeah. and, and, and it's, and it's so easy to do that. You can almost do that with any two books or any two movies or any two, anything. If you just want to pick out the similarities and disregard the, uh, the dissimilarities. And so in that way, it's a, it's very similar to cold reading and all sorts of other things mm-hmm. that do this hits and misses thing that we're so programmed, uh, so, so tuned in to notice. And, and, uh, and uh, we sort of, it's just how we, one of the ways we tend to make sense of the world. And, and if you turn that uh, up to 11, you get all these strange things that you start to believe or predictions of the future or whatever. This is the, I mean, like anyone who's read your book, David, I think has come to the conclusion that they shouldn't trust their brain. And it's, it's, it's a, I think it's quite a revelatory thing for a lot of people to understand that we actually aren't intuitively very good at pattern recognition. We aren't intuitively very good at making rational sense of the world. We actually need to invest a, um, a mindset and, a, and do work to attempt to counteract what biases we have, um, either mm. naturally or through cultural indoctrination. And it's, it's disconcerting, I think, for a lot of people because we have this idea our whole lives before we challenge these thoughts that we are rational agents, that we are these, you know, like um, we are capable of seeing things clearly and coherently, coherently and logically and honestly. And when we start to tease apart and look at, oh, actually, my intuition there doesn't gel at all with reality. There's actually something wrong with my hardware and my software that I'm not interpreting this in in a, in a realistic way and i need to i need tools i need to consciously interfere with my intuition to be able to arrive at um a, a more clear understanding of what's going on yeah and that's it, so true in every way and the especially the part about my books and the uh <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the uh the uh the thing is any one of these fallacies that has to do with statistics or anything that has to do with statistics anyway, that's where we, that's when you really get into the, uh, the portions of our thinking that are so bad. And we, and we have such strong intuitions that we are great at statistics, uh, that we have, and we trust that intuitive response to just about any statistical problem. Um, that that's why Texas sharpshooter is so powerful because it's like a mega example of how or we are at disassembling statistical data. Absolutely. Um, and I think with all the fallacies, what I find most interesting about them is what they expose about our psychology. Um, and it's like, apart from, I mean, the fallacies themselves are, you know, these quite discrete um, logical um, constructs and, you know, there the being a fault in that. But there's a much deeper level underneath that um, about why. Why do we commit these fallacies? Why are we prone to these biases? Why are we um, so bad <laughs> at actually trying to understand an argument clearly and coherently? We all obviously, at point blank, you ask someone, do you want the truth of things? Do you want to actually understand it? And we all do. Of course we do. No one wants to be beholden to you know something that actually doesn't make sense or is a lie or is outdated thinking or anything like that. We all uh-huh. have this conscious idea that we want to update our thinking, that we want to be you know, um, rational, um, sensible people. Um, but in practice, uh, we employ so many of these faulty, um, mechanisms of, of thought, and it really requires a, a conscious intervention, um, to be able to disrupt that, that process and that inclination. There's nothing there's for, for me, there, nothing has been better than the, uh, the, 
that aspect of this where you start to have that shared humility with other human beings. Mm-hmm. And, it, and for me, it feels it feels very nice to be able to admit that we start from that place, saying that maybe I don't know everything and maybe I have a lot to learn. And so, and so I find it's very it's very freeing for me to, to look yeah. at things in this way. And I think people, like, we presume that, you know, I said that you have to do work and there's a conscious intervention, which makes it sound like a drag. But really, I agree with you. It's, it's a really pleasant and, and rewarding experience to, to you know, divest of yourself the idea that you have to be right about everything. There's a tension and a stress with that, that you have to constantly justify things. If you're okay with being wrong, then it's then it's okay, you know, you're not invested in that anymore and you're not stressed by, you know, having to justify whatever dogmatic beliefs you may have accidentally picked up along the way. And I think you're right, though, that there's this cultural kind of precept and it extends to definitely Australian culture as well. Um, but I think that it's it's an artifact of Western cultural thought to a large extent, perhaps more most sort of like prevalently in American culture, this idea of individualism and the hero's sort of um, perspective mm-hmm. of things. And mm-hmm. we have such a strong cultural um, reinforcement of this idea that the hero prevails, you know. I, the individual, are, uh, are going to, you know, through all this adversity and conflict, um, I'm going to come through and there'll be, like, orchestral music at the end, angels will sing, everything will be resolved. You know, there's this guy, and it goes really deep with us, you know, whereas the kind of idea that, oh, maybe I'm wrong about things, I don't know. You know, like, that that humility is, is a much less celebrated aspect of our of our cultural identity and our psyche as a result. And I think it's a it's something that 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 has so much value and, and is so... Um, as you say, liberating and freeing to be able to be okay with the idea that you might be wrong. How can you better spot the Texas sharpshooter fallacy out there in the wild? So I think the trick is to look at people's motives. Um, so whenever like statistical data is being proffered to you, question what the agenda of that person is. Is there a profit motive? Is there a dogmatic ideological motive? All these kinds of things. And if it's it's kind of apparent that there might be, then it's probably a good cue um, to have a look at, okay, well, um, this is what's being presented to me, but let's think about where's the where's the noise to the signal in proportion? Where's the, um, what else might be a confounding factor in terms of how this conclusion has been arrived at. And it's often difficult to do, you know, like um, Google's your friend, but um, you might not have access to the, all of the scholarly articles and whatever else. So I think a healthy dose of skepticism is, is, is wise all of the time whenever we're looking at these sorts of things and all the more so when someone has an agenda to push and they're um, professing to be the authority on something um, statistically. Um, it's, it's wise to have a measure of doubt. So what is your advice for the average person to avoid committing this fallacy? Well, to avoid committing the fallacy, you really want to try to use scientific thinking and use it properly. And you always want to do that um, whenever you're thinking about anything about what's true about the world or arguing anything. Always use good scientific thinking. And good scientific thinking is not conclusion driven. We don't... um, we think we start with what we think is true, which is our working hypothesis, but we don't seek to confirm that hypothesis. We actually, the, the approach, scientific approach is to try to disconfirm, um, but we let the data tell us what is not, is not true. And so you always want to approach everything with an open mind and not try to 
not try to look for the things that prove your point because that's where you'll always go wrong. Um, mm -hmm. If you're, you know, preparing a talk about, you know, um, just something that, that irks you about the world, the way to, to prepare that talk is to actually look at the evidence, not to then Google it and then take the bits from the things that you agree with. And we, we should all know this already, but yet we all do it. So I think whenever you're looking for a pattern, it pays to play devil's advocate to see if the pattern you're seeing might be explained by randomity. I think that's 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 the central sort of um, idea that that is the takeaway in, for, in terms of this this fallacy and our, our bias toward committing it. If we try to, you know, uh, think to ourselves, okay, I can see this connection here, but I'm aware that my brain is not to be trusted. And therefore, um, you know, could this be explained by random chance? And would we expect to see that, you know, if random chance were um, put out over the sample size, it can help to at least offset the effect. Yeah. And it's good. I don't, supposedly, Carl Sagan said that randomness is clumpy and whether or not he mm. said it, it's, it's a good thing to remember that totally. if you're looking, if you're looking at a, at a large enough data set, it's going to clump up in weird ways. And our inclination is to say, ah, there's a thing that's important. There it is right there. Mm. So uh, just be aware that your brain does that. And it may or may not actually be worth going down that rabbit hole. Totally. And so if, if you, let's say, if you're on the receiving end of this, if someone is, is using this to, uh, to argue against you, is there, is there, a, is there a good way to say, to raise up a flag and, and, and let someone realize, Hey, wait, you're committing this this well-known fallacy that this one is very tough with this one even if you recognize that it's it's happening it can be really difficult to counter this if you're not familiar with the data if you don't know what the other points are um then it, it's very difficult to do but try to think about what the person might be missing and then just ask those questions you know for example are they using a lot of anecdotes because anecdotes tend to to feed into this whole sharpshooter idea because that's all data points are. Data is just a bunch of anecdotes put together. So think yeah. if you think about it that way, that, that's really true. The plural of anecdote is data. Um, <laughs> that's a, a misnomer that it's not. Um, so if, if they're using a lot of anecdotes, then there's probably, for every anecdote they come up with, there's probably five more that are outside of that target zone. Um, never do just one group of data points um, you know, prove a point unless you're looking at them in the context of a full data set. And unless you, you don't know what, unless you know what you're looking for, unless you know that there's a full data set there and that there might be data points outside of that target, um, it can be really difficult to do. So you just have to be thinking in those terms, thinking about what they might be missing, uh, what may not be uh, being, what, what explanations may not be entering into the argument. And if you can think that way, you may not know the answer, but at least you can ask those questions. Wow. That's a tough one. <laughs> it is. It's a very tough uh, one. So I think a simple sort of tactic that you can use um, is to, ex to explain it as to say, if a data cluster like you're talking about didn't happen in a sample size this big, that would be amazing. And I think turning the tables on it oh, in that yeah. way helped to elucidate that, okay, yeah, well, like not only is uh, statistics clumpy, but also, if there wasn't something that, if there wasn't this kind of, um, you know, cluster somewhere, um, then it would be absurd. Um, and so that can help to to make the 
um, the variation that we see in, in, in large data sets more intuitively apparent, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the verb of, you know, it's, it's the, the very active statistical version of confirmation bias where you are. Yeah, exactly. You, you have a premise, you have a, you have, you're engaging in motivated reasoning and you're trying to, um, you're looking for a thing. And instead of looking for the thing, you just look for clusters and then you draw the circle around them. Uh, it is, it's the after the fact of it that makes it so problematic. Yeah. My favorite example of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is the Bermuda Triangle. Because you can you can draw a triangle anywhere on the earth and get about as many missing planes. But oh, that's really good. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So the it makes perfect sense. And but there you go. We were like this and so and we were like another plane went down in the Bermuda well, and Triangle. Then it's, and then it's like and then frequency illusion plays into that, right? Where right, right. Where you're like we're like, oh man, another one in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> yes. Like when you're looking for it, you're gonna you'll find it. And we bid farewell to our three experts. In the next five episodes, you will hear from three new experts on logical fallacies and thinking in general. Their names, again, if you want to keep up with them, if you want to find them out there in the world, Jesse Richardson, Barbara Drescher, and Mike Rugnetta. You can find them at icbseverywhere.com, yourlogicalfallacyis.com, and PBS Idea Channel on YouTube. More information about what they do and logical fallacies in general at youarenotsosmart.com and the show notes for this and all the other episodes. And speaking of that, if you have enjoyed these last five episodes on logical fallacies or the last 71 episodes on all sorts of things in the world of psychology and self-delusion and judgment and decision-making and reason, you can support this show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Just $1 will get you in the door and you'll get access to all of the extras for these episodes. I'm going to put up lots and lots of stuff that I didn't get to in these interviews. We went we went off topic, and we went on, on all these tangents about different ideas. I'll put all of that into the extras, and the patrons, they get to listen to extras for the show. Sometimes they're even longer than the shows themselves. So check out all that at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. All right, after this music fades out, a commercial, a cookie, and then the credits. Mmm, cookies. Building a website can be tough. Even if you do know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well, it's a time-consuming affair. Whether it's for a business website, a portfolio, a restaurant, whatever. In this day and age, you need one. 
you can't just depend on social media. Well, lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful websites that look professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, with no coding required. Not only does Squarespace provide you with intuitive and easy-to-use tools to create your website, Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust in Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust in them too. Now, I use Squarespace for my personal website. I wanted something that was easy to update. If something changed, if I wanted to add something, if I wanted to give some news, some information, I wanted to be able to go click, 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 and then pow, it's there. It's done. If I make a change, it is instantaneously on the website and it looks fantastic. Seriously, you cannot beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website. So look, what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use this offer code, so smart, you will get 10% off of your first purchase. And it shows your support for this podcast. They get a little thing that says, hey, look, somebody from, from You Are Not So Smart got the 10% off offer. It helps us both. So we thank Squarespace for their support of You Are Not So Smart. And we urge you, build your next website at squarespace.com. And now we return to the program. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's In each episode of the You Are Not So Smart C podcast, I eat a cookie. cookie. Begged from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader by email. You send those recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if we pick your recipe and we bake it and I eat it, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book in the mail to your house or apartment or wherever you may be living. You get a signed copy of either You Are Not So Smart or You Are Now Less Dumb. So in this episode, the cookie that we're tasting comes from Anton Angelo, who writes, Hi, David. Thank you so much for your podcast. You're right up there with, and he mentions some other podcasts, Brian Cox's Infinite Monkey Cage, In Our Time with Melvin Bragg, Mark Kermode, is that how you say his name? Mark Kermode? Mark Kermode's Film Reviews. And that is very nice of you. Those are some really great, smart, super cool people in great podcasts. I don't know if I deserve to be among those, but I thank you so much for saying that uh, you listen to that as a sweet and I am part of it. That is so cool. He says, Here's a recipe that you might be interested in. They have a great history as well as being my absolute favorites. He says in this email, they are a take on the little spice cookies really common in some parts of Europe over Christmas. Some even make fancy shapes and hang them from their Christmas trees. The New Zealand version gets two plain spice cookies, slaps jam in between, and makes it a sandwich. He says maybe jelly would do, but good raspberry jam with seeds in it is traditional and you top them off with a bit of fondant icing and then on top you put a little dusting a little jello powder so it's confection fit for a sheep shearer's morning smoko (laughs) 
That's what he writes, which he says is morning tea and a morning snack. Originally, these were called, I'm still reading from this email. Originally, these were called German biscuits, but anti-German sentiment at the beginning of the First World War renamed them Belgium biscuits. Not, as you'll note, Belgian biscuits. Cooked bologna was also renamed Belgium from being previously known as German sausage. And this was in memory of poor Belgium, the first country to be attacked in the Great War, 1914 to 1918. Still reading from this email. This is fantastic. New Zealand had one of the highest casualty rates in the Great War with more than 100,000 men deployed overseas of a population of a million and became a founding part of the national identity. It's our own freedom fries, if you like. That is so cool. I love, we get all these cookies that have these national identities. They have these pedigrees and I find it endlessly fascinating. There's a whole world of like culinary anthropology. There's even a world of the psychology related to people's uh, food habits and how food trends come and go. I just love it. I love this world. It's a world I don't know anything about. And every time I learn anything new about it, it is marvelous to me. So these cookies have a billion ingredients, sugar and vanilla essence and cinnamon and spices and ginger and baking powder and red food coloring and jam. It's, it's an intense process. I can't even go into it. Just know this is a complicated affair, but it ends up with a really simple looking, beautiful, polite, petite cookie. And we're going to try it right now, Anton. Here we go. Mmm. Crumble, crumble, crumble. Mmm, 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 mmm. Belgium. Mmm, that's so good. You know, it's it's it is it's complicated even in the eating of it. It's um there's a lot happening in my mouth. My tongue is thinking many different things. My tongue my tongue is thinking many things. There's just a lot of different textures and a lot of flavors associated with different textures all happening. It seems so simple on the outside, but it's very complicated once you start chewing. And I forgot to tell you what it looks like. It looks like um, maybe a gingerbread, a very, very thin gingerbread cookie. Then with a, it's a, it's a sandwich where the bread is gingerbread, gingerbread cookies and there's raspberry jam in the middle. And on the top, there's just a layer of what would look looks kind of like icing, but upon closer inspection, you realize it's part of the cookie itself, and it's got these little red sprinkles on it. It's a really nice cookie. I feel like it's it's a cookie with manners. This is a cookie that actually listens during conversations instead of waiting for its turn to talk. And this is a cookie that that cues very well, forms a line very well, does not like people cutting in front of it. And it opens doors for other cookies. This is a cookie with refined, civilized manners. Unassuming, polite, a very nice cookie. Thank you so much, Anton. I'm actually going to Belgium in uh, in a few months to do some lecture stuff. So I I really appreciate this is be this is my first introduction to Belgium and the wonderful world of its confections. I I hope. I hope you are as polite as your cookie has been to my mouth. I don't know what that I, what I just said. <laughs> oh, a cookie in my mouth means a book is on its way. Itchy, 
That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Check this out. Boingboingpodcasts.com. We've sort of relaunched the network. And so you will find not only this podcast, but Flash Forward, a podcast about the future, takes on future scenarios. Home, stories about Los Angeles. Incredibly interesting authors, which is about incredibly interesting authors. Gweek, a podcast where editors and friends of Boing Boing talk about media, science, and science fiction and video games and everything else. It Look, you've got to check it out. These are all my favorite podcasts. This is a great family to be part of. It's called boingboingpodcasts.com. Head to youarenotsosmart.com for all the show notes and all the previous episodes and everything else you want to know about these shows. Thank you so much for listening. Patreon people, patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.